I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is attorney Cheyenne Hunt. Uh, We're going to be talking about 10 ways Gen Z is driving industry and why everyone should care. As Gen Z belief systems and behaviors are a driving force not only in shaping culture, but uh, economies at the global level, it's imperative to understand commonalities in order to discern opportunities and challenges that lie ahead. Cheyenne Hunt, JD, shares her thoughts on how Gen Zs are driving industry and how it may affect our economy in the future. She's a progressive advocate and attorney specializing in progressive activism, legislation legislative advocacy, communications, and democracy-focused tech policy. She graduated from the University of California, Irvine School of Law, and has earned dual degrees in political science and public policy from the University of Denver, and serves as a board member for the Women of Global Change. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Cheyenne. Hi. Great to be with you, Catherine. Okay, so you're an you are the expert or one of the experts on uh, Gen Z, which I find a fascinating uh, generation. I've had several people on my show talking about Gen Z, but you have a lot of information. So Gen Z, very different than the millennials. Let's start with that. How are they different from that generation uh, ahead of them? Yeah, definitely. And full disclosure, you know, I'm just barely a Gen Z. I'm right on the cusp between Gen Z and millennials, but I definitely can identify and feel the difference between the two. You know, the main the main difference, I would say, is just the environment in which we grew up. For Gen Z, you know, we are the first generation to really be fully immersed in technology our entire lives. From the day that we were born, there were cell phones, there was the internet and the World Wide Web, We've been completely plugged in and connected from the day we were born. And so that's really shaped the way that we think about everything, the economy, information technology, how we communicate and how we connect with other people. So that's a, a big one. And then also just the, the But let's stop with this one because I think that's key. That's like really important, that technology thing. That's what you've grown up with. And you, you hear the other generations complaining about too much technology, too much social media, too much of this, too much. But you know, that's not true for your generation. So take it step by step for us. What, how has that affected you in what specific areas? Take social media, for yeah. example. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think to say too much social media or too much technology uh, lacks a little bit of nuance. Are there ways in which it's impacted our lives both positively and negatively? Yes. And a lot of that comes down to, policy and and the ways that, you know, these companies are allowed to operate. So for us, it's incredible to be connected to people the way that we are. It's a gift, you know, to be able to maintain friendships across the country, to be able to connect with people in this way through the internet and through technology, to have friends across the world that you play video games with, for example, like these are new phenomenons and a new way of kind of connecting and relating across countries, across cultures. But at the same time, you know, social media has also had a very negative effect on Gen Z. We've seen tons of studies showing that it increases, you know, a lot of risks for teen girls. There's a lot of increased risks of eating disorders. Just for one example, there's human trafficking. There's all these impacts that come from unregulated social media. And I say unregulated intentionally 
you know, I think that's something that I work on a lot is how do we regulate these gigantic companies that have these services, these social media services that have become inextricably intertwined with the way that we live our lives. And to, to have that big of an impact and yet have so little regulation, particularly on kids and how they're allowed to, you know, operate with children on their platform, it has a serious impact on our mental health and the way that we kind of think about and see ourselves in the world. So it's, you know, there's, there's good and bad on each side. But how do you regulate it? As you say, yes, that's true. Okay, you have these companies and these influencers that influence all of us, and particularly uh, younger people—not particularly, but in addition, uh, younger in addition to also younger people. So, how 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 do you, um, I guess, what are these regulations you're working on? It. Yeah, you know, yeah. there's some there's some really common sense things that we can do. And I think that's the easiest place to start. We have very little protection for children and their privacy online. And that's not a heavy lift. There's bipartisan bills that have been proposed that are just waiting to get passed in the House and Senate that would increase protections for children's privacy and require some of these companies who know that they have children and minors on their platforms to take very basic precautions to ensure that the material that they're seeing isn't harmful and that they're not exposed to, uh, you know, environments online that could predispose them to things like human trafficking or predatory behavior. So that's, you know, I think that makes sense regardless of party like that. There's a reason that those are bipartisan bills. And the, the main reason why these things aren't getting passed is because industry makes a lot of money advertising to and profiting off of children on their platforms. And so they're paying millions of dollars to send lobbyists to Capitol Hill to stop these bills from getting passed. And it's obscene. You know, this is we're talking about the future of the world here. We're talking about our next generation and to allow them to be experimented on and to be subject to predatory behaviors by companies like Meta, Facebook, Twitter is really deeply upsetting. And I think it's, you know, it doesn't take much for us to take action here. And then there's broader protections, too. For adults, we need comprehensive data privacy protections. There's so many intimate details of our lives that these companies are able to glean from our, our patterns on, on the Internet, the apps that we use. They track our location data. And th- those things can be sold publicly by data brokers, and anyone can buy them. We've seen instances of women being targeted by, you know, domestically violent partners, by stalkers, because this data is available online and it's really, really scary. So there's there's things that we can do that just seem really common sense. And obviously, you know, there's a lot of industry resistance, but we've got to we've got to be brave enough to overcome that. You say there's industry resistance. Are there any industries in particular that are not resisting, that are doing something about it, using the technology? Because as you said, you, and also maybe because as Gen Zs become head of industry, have their own children, find a different place in the world, that makes a difference in terms of instituting some, or have some of these regulations? You know, there's a handful of companies that have become leaders in this space that are trying to offer services that are, you know, similar or competitive that don't behave in such predatory ways and that don't collect and utilize user data in in that predatory way. But the truth is we're in an environment where the big tech market is pretty monopolized and you know, there's a reason why we have anti-monopoly laws in this country, and it's because when you have a handful of companies that retain this much market power through mergers and acquisitions, they become almost 
untouchable. And so these companies that are doing their best to go out there and kind of compete and offer an alternative, I mean, they're being completely dwarfed by Facebook and, and Instagram and Twitter. It's like really hard to, and TikTok too. So, you know, we, that's another kind of side and facet to this is enforcement of our anti-monopoly laws so that there actually can be competitors that enter the market and offer a meaningful alternative. And I think as Gen Z, you know, comes to just enter into the space. Like I said, I'm the top of Gen Z. I'm 25 years old. So we're just starting to see the impact that Gen Z is going to make in the business world as executives, as innovators, as people who are offering like a meaningful alternative. And I think that because we've been so personally affected by these issues and we've had, you know, these, these we've felt the effects of what happens when big tech is unregulated. We, we're going to see a lot of uh, innovation in this space, and I think we're definitely going to be leaders in this fight. Well, uh, on a different topic, because Gen Z, there are a lot of things that represent or labels, new labels, I guess, that describe Gen Z. One of them that you have mentioned is that there's an emphasis on multiple income streams, which I found interesting, which is a little bit different or different, say, than baby boomers, for instance. Um, so talk to us about that. What are we talking about? Yeah, you know, I think that there's a couple of things that go into this. One, Gen Z, because of our understanding and our, our affinity for technology, we know that we're capable of multiple different strategies of bringing in income, whether that's through entrepreneurial means or through side hustles, as they say. And there's there's just this this feeling that we can go out and we can hustle and, and build something maybe more exciting than the traditional nine to five. At the same time, this has become something somewhat of an imperative for a lot of us to achieve our basic financial goals because we live in an economy unlike baby boomers where you can't meaningfully sustain yourself and a family of four on the wage of one worker at a blue-collar job. Corporate profits are at all-time highs, while worker wages have stayed stagnant just about for 70 years. And this puts us in a situation where, in order to have a chance at living the lives our parents were able to provide for us, We've got to look for multiple streams of income, whether it's another job, whether it's driving for Uber, whether it's creating user-generated content online. You know, we're getting creative here to try and make ends meet and to also create a different kind of life than what we necessarily saw our parents live through the 2008 housing crisis and all the layoffs. You know, there's a lot of trying to make sure that we're financially secure in the system that we now live. So how do you do that and sort of reconcile that with something else that you've been talking about that, and you call it the slow living Gen Z, the Gen Z is much more aware of boundaries between work and personal life, and they know how to separate and create those boundaries and not get uh, so over-involved in one or the other, uh, but then they have to have these multiple income uh, sources. So how are they leading a kind of slower pace but at the same time, you know, having, you know, several, as I said, as you said, several income sources having to go out and earn monies in different places. Yeah. You know, it sounds counterintuitive, but I think there's a reason why slow living <laughs> is popular. And it's just that, you know, we're hustling and we feel the need to do that and in order to be financially secure. But that comes with very real risks to your mental health, like burnout. We have seen an epidemic of burnout in this country. And so the only way to really rectify that is to slow down. 
And so slow living has become something that a lot of us aspire to integrate into our lives to find some balance. And I think it's also born, again, out of that 2008 housing crisis. You know, we watched our families dedicate and our parents dedicate their careers and their lives to one job at one company. And to see so many of them get laid off while executives failed to take even a minor pay cut, you realize, and I think a lot of us have internalized, that it doesn't matter how much you love the company, the company cannot love you back. And so it's become a lot more important for us to find work-life balance than necessarily to burn the candle at both ends for one job. And so part of that balance is kind of that, uh, that side hustle culture because you can usually do it around your own hours. I mean, we, we love working remotely because it's freedom to be able to go and do what we want and to work some balance in because we're not in the office. And by the way, studies have shown that we're just as productive when we work that way, if not more so. And so I think that that's really a, a key tenant for Gen Z because we're so immersed in this hustle culture is, you know, it's not sustainable if you don't have balance and slow living is something that I think a lot of us are trying to integrate to find a little bit of that balance in the process. I think uh, that's a good point. I mean, you have the technology, the understanding, the awareness of technology to be able to do that and be really productive when you're working at home. Maybe some of the, say, baby boomers or traditionalists don't quite have that or have the same ability to harness the technology to do that. So, uh, I mean, that's key. Artificial intelligence. That's something that I guess the research has shown that Gen Z really uh, is into artificial intelligence. They understand it. Um, they're interested in it. What's that going to do for us or, or do for your generation or do for Gen Z? Yeah, you know, I think that there's a lot of potential there and there's also a lot of risks that we need to be well aware of. So Gen Z loves AI because it has the potential to overcome a lot of minor inconveniences, I would say, that exist within the tech space and to also you know, the, the internet is this great wealth of information, nearly endless, to the point where trying to find the answer to something that you're looking for can become somewhat overwhelming because there's just so much out there. And what these AI language generative chatbots are offering is, and it's definitely the technology is not entirely there yet, but what we're starting to see glimmers of is this t technology that can do the hard part for you, which is scanning the internet and, and evaluating sources to put together what looks like a coherent and simply stated truth on whatever it is you're looking for. And in a way that's easily understandable, they'll synthesize, you know, these papers that are written by high-end researchers into however you want it to be read. You can tell these things, generate a, an 800-word article or tell me in layman's terms, you know, how, what I need to do to prevent heart disease. And it can be something that makes really difficult information to synthesize into something that anybody can understand. And that's just one piece of the puzzle for AI. The other side of it, though, is AI is also kind of being promised as this technology that's going to be great for things like the justice system or for, and you, you're probably keenly aware of this process with your experience with social work, with the child welfare process. And because they're, they're saying, you know, it's technology, so it's not going to be subject to human bias, and it can take these algorithms and make an evaluation on whether or not a child is going to be subject to risk of abuse in a home. And it's not going to be subject to the kind of racial or ethnic or gender biases that we have as social workers, so we should just trust what it says. But what people don't necessarily realize is that behind these algorithms 
they're just trained on human behavior. They, whatever that we input is what it's going to output. And so whether we mean to or not, it's going to pick up all of these implicit biases that exist in the literature and online and whatever we put into it. And it's just going to spit out the same biased decisions. And we've seen that when it's been put into trials, that it, it, it has these kind of biases still deeply ingrained in it. And then we have biased decisions without transparency. And that's also a, a problem. So there's there's potential for it to really revolutionize industries, but we also need to be really mindful of the ethics concerns while we roll it out. Uh, and another area which uh, I guess the research has shown that Gen Z is very uh, is concerned with is our natural resources and our, how we utilize our natural resources and climate change and all of those kinds of things, because we don't seem to be doing very well at that either. So what's the answer uh, what answer does Gen Z have for that particular issue, yeah, you know, global issue? I think issue. Gen Z, yeah. we've, we've never lived in a world that wasn't touched by climate change. You know, we, from the day that we were born, it has been keenly aware that the way that we've, you know, been operating our energy economy is having a potentially uh, totally destructive impact on the planet. And, it's something that from, you know, our early days in elementary school, we've been talking about, hearing about, thinking about. And so I think what's different about Gen Z with, with this is we've never known anything different. And so it's naturally really landing at the top of our list of priorities that we need to take care of the planet. And we know, you know, that we're going to be, many of us are going to live to see some of the first really disastrous effects that come if we fail to take action and we fail to transition our economy, to our energy economy to something more sustainable. And we're already seeing it. I mean, I'm originally from California and the fires that have torn through my hometown on a yearly basis because it is so dry. I mean, it's, it's insane. The displacement, the loss of life. And so we think really critically about anything that's going to impact the planet. And I think it's at the top of our list of priorities. And so by placing it near the top of the list, I'm hopeful that we can continue to kind of send our resources. And there's a record number of us who are interested in it, who are going to school to try and figure out how we innovate these things and get really committed to clean energy. Uh, And so it's really at the top of our priorities. And even when we go and pick our careers, it's something that people are really thinking about and it's ingrained into every decision we make and the way we live our lives. So I think it's something that's really going to stay at the top of our list of priorities as as this crisis unfolds. Yeah, well, I mean, that's good to hear because I think for some, maybe the baby boomers and older are, it's, I don't want to say it's an intellectual exercise, but in certain ways it is because they're going to live for 10, 15, maybe 20 years max. You guys are going to live to be 100 and this is it for you. And so, and you feel it. I mean, as you say, you're born into it. I think that's a very different perspective than other Uh, older generations who haven't done it. Yeah, we can't ignore it. You can't ignore it, right. But but there's something about you feel it. This is what you know. This is all that you know, actually, in in terms of, uh, you know, the environmental impact of climate change. Um, Another area that you talk about, um, that you've talked about, is Web3 industry. What is that? The Gen Z has a strong interest in the Web3 industry. Um, and that's something that most, I mean, I'm a baby boomer, so I keep bringing them up, but that we have a lot of difficulty understanding blockchain, a different way of doing business. Uh, but you're saying that Gen Z is really, really into this. 
I mean, that's say the wave of the future. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think Gen Z is interested in it because kind of like we talked about at the top, a lot of the tech industry is really consolidated in the hands of a few powerful billionaires and their companies. And Web3 offers an alternative that allows a little bit of decentralization and allows a little bit of innovation and a little bit of freedom from the, you know, those, those powerful bodies that have not necessarily, you know, had the best reputation with how they, how they treat us and our data and our private information. So whether it's cryptocurrencies, whether it's AI, whether it's smart contracts that, you know, you can execute separately from any other source of data, the blockchain, the process, and keep financial records that uh, are, are separate from a financial institution. Like, these are things that are interesting to Gen Z, but I also, you know, say on the other side, as somebody who works in uh, democracy-focused big tech work, you know, there's still a ways to go before I would endorse these things as necessarily, like, entirely safe for wise investments. And, you know, it's what comes with decentralization is also a lack of accountability. We've seen cryptocurrency be used to launder money of Russian oligarchs who are subject to sanctions because of the war in Ukraine. So, you know, there's there's good sides and, and bad sides to all of these things. But I think Gen Z is interested in it because it's innovative and it's it's something where, you know, there's an opportunity to plug in. And we don't know. These, these technologies are so new. We don't know how they're going to play out yet. Like the very beginning of the Internet was uh, it was we were still just, you know, there's a lot of use cases or trying it out. You're trying to figure out what this thing is even good for. And I think that's really where we are with Web3. And it's exciting. You know, I think we're, it's going to revolutionize the way we think about the internet and connectivity and what it's really capable of in short order. Web3 industry, is that taught or is it will be taught or is it taught now in any way in schools? Maybe not necessarily elementary schools, middle school, high school, I'm assuming in college. Not necessarily. You know, I think that maybe when you get to a, a high level of like collegiate computer coding, they're starting to talk about blockchain just because it's so out there and breaking down what exactly it is and how it works. And I'll tell you, it's complicated. It is not uh, intuitive whatsoever. I've I've worked with these engineers who really think critically about these things and, and how it works. But I I don't think that it's something that is commonplace yet. Maybe that's well, we only have a few minutes left, but I just want to kind of maybe end up with this one because another sort of a description of a Gen Zer, which is different than a millennial, is that Gen Zs tend, after all of this and all of what uh, we've done with the planet as baby boomers and uh, traditionalists, uh, they trust their parents more than, say, millennials did. They listen to them. They listen. They have uh, uh, their parents' advice has more an, of an impact on them. So how is that for you? Yeah, you know, I was raised by a single mother and her single mother, my grandmother. So I and, and their word is pretty gospel to me. And I think a lot of the reason why is, you know, we we grew up in pretty unprecedented times and we watched our parents navigate economies and and layoffs and fi- like financial struggles that were pretty unheard of. And we are in a situation ourselves where, like I've said, you know, 37% of Gen Zs don't think we're ever going to own a home, that that's even realistic for us in this economy. And that's really sad. And so we look at our parents and, you know, they've provided a lot of support for us. A lot of us like are living with our parents longer. And given what they've gone through and what we saw them go through in 08 and in general, you know, a lot of them went through foreclosures and we, we saw the toll that that took. We really trust their advice because we don't want to go through that ourselves. And 
you know, we have we have our own concerns about what the future is going to look like and being able to have somebody to lean on definitely helps. So experience does count. Should we end the interview with all of the information we have? Experience still counts, I think, is what I hear you saying. But uh, give us a website or websites to go to for more information about what you're doing. I mean, uh, you know, really exciting work. We're talking uh, to Cheyenne Hunt, who is an attorney, and uh, we've been talking about the ten. I don't do, do we? I don't know if we talked about all ten ways uh, Gen Z is driving industry and why everyone should care. But uh, if we haven't, then uh, give us uh, websites to go to where we can get more information. Yeah, you can find me at Cheyenne.L.Hunt, Cheyenne spelled like Wyoming, Cheyenne, uh, on TikTok and Instagram. That's where you can catch up with everything that I've got going on and uh, what's going on next. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Lots of great information. Yeah, thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 